Open your Bibles to Mark chapter 5. We're continuing our journey through this gospel, learning about the person and work of Christ. We'll read through it, and I would love to hear from you uh, what strikes you as we go through it that is especially important that you don't want us to miss, and then I'll preach. Let's pray as we go to the Word, Mark 5. Father, we're grateful for your Word. We're grateful for in it we find light and life and truth. We are grateful for the Spirit who inspired it and enables us to understand it, to be transformed by it. Lord, we're grateful for Jesus. And I pray that we would become better acquainted with him because of the time we spend in this passage this morning. Please, Lord, be working as only you can in each of our lives, bringing encouragement and conviction, joy, gratitude, humility. Whatever it is we need, Lord, I pray for each person here that we would take the steps we need closer to you, depending on you more. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Mark chapter 5, we'll start at verse 21. And when Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side, so he's coming from last week's passage, the Gerasenes, Gentile territory, back into Jewish territory after he heals this demon-possessed man in this most dramatic way. No doubt news has spread now, and he returns to Jewish context here. When Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side, a great crowd gathered about him, and he was beside the sea. Then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name. Let's, let's pause here. I, I showed these photographs to you last time I was here, but I again want to emphasize the reality of these things. It's easy with the Bible to slip into mythical ways of thinking, these stories to make a point. These are real places, real people, real time in history. That's how God has revealed himself in history. And so we have a photograph. This is the synagogue in Capernaum. There are mosaics from the very time this scene happened in the first century. This is the inside of the synagogue. This same synagogue that Jairus is a leader in, probably the leader so this Jairus is a leader, an authority figure in this, this city of Capernaum, and he is an important guy. He's the one who decides who gets up and reads scripture here, the one who gets to teach the people, the ones who get to be leaders too. He's a key part of that process. So the guy carries a lot of weight in Capernaum. And, and there really is this place where all this happened, real people, real time. So let's keep going. Then came one of the rulers, verse 22, of the synagogue, Jairus by name, and seeing him, he fell at his feet. That's Jairus falling at the feet of Jesus. Keep that image of this man at the feet of Jesus in your mind. And implored him earnestly, saying, my little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her so that she may be made well and live. And he went with him. 
no big fanfare, nothing dramatic. Jesus granted his request. He no doubt Jairus is very grateful. And a great crowd followed him and thronged about him. There was a woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years and who had suffered much under many physicians and had spent all that she had and was no better, but rather grew worse. She had heard the reports about Jesus and came up behind him in the crowd and touched his garment. For she said, if I touch even his garments, I will be made well. And immediately the flow of blood dried up and she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. And Jesus, perceiving in himself that power had gone out from him, immediately turned about in the crowd and said, Who touched my garments? And his disciples said to him, You see the crowd pressing around you, and yet you say, Who touched me? We find out in another gospel that was actually Peter who said that. Makes sense. (laughs) And he looked around to see who had done it. But the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And he said to her, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. While he was still speaking, there came from the ruler's house some who said, your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? But overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, do not fear, only believe. And he allowed no one to follow except Peter and James and John, the brother of James. They came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue and Jesus saw a commotion, people weeping and wailing loudly. And when he had entered, he said to them, Why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. But he put them all outside and took the child's father and mother and those who were with him and went in where the child was. Taking her by the hand, he said to her, Talitha kumi, which means, little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately... The girl got up and began walking, for she was 12 years of age. See, not a baby. And they were immediately overcome with amazement. And he strictly charged them that no one should know this and told them to give her something to eat. Oh, if you came in here thinking the Bible was boring, I hope it's obvious you're wrong about that. Let's make some observations here. This is what is called a Markin sandwich. Um, it is. This is a Markin sandwich. Mark 
tells stories in ways that um, help us understand a point as the meat of a sandwich between two stories. And let me just tell you what the, the two stories are, the woman and the little girl. Well, actually, the little girl and the woman. But sandwiched in between them is the meat of this one phrase Jesus uses for Jairus in verse 36. Do not fear, only believe. That's the meat of the sandwich. That's the point of these stories. Do not fear, only believe. And I can say with confidence, we all need that meat this morning. We all have plenty of sources of fear, of anxiety, of struggle, of doubt, of massive questions, as these two in the story no doubt have. Life throws all sorts of difficulty our way that tests our trust, tests our faith in a good God who's actually going to make things work out well. We understand that. And maybe you're here this morning and you don't believe in God for the very reason I'm, I'm talking about, that, that the world is filled with so much suffering. How in the world could God really be who he says he is, and yet the world's so messed up? Your life itself is so messed up. And what I want you to realize is the rightness of that question, the, the goodness of asking that question. But please realize that that question is only the question it is because there's an assumption of God as being who he is. So the character of God as a God who is good and is powerful enough to solve all the problems really is necessary for you to be mad about evil. It is. There's really no basis to be frustrated or mad or even, I would say, to define evil in any moral sense that would lead you to outrage apart from a God who actually created everything, is working in everything, and is able to make things differently than they are and actually wants to because he's so good. The problem of evil, which you could argue is the greatest theological problem of all time, is only a problem if God really is who he says he is in the Bible and if he's committed to a relationship with us where we can even take our problems to him. See, if those things aren't true, uh, what are you upset about? If it's just random, chaotic chance and survival of the fittest, really this thing called evil doesn't even exist. And even though we grope for some way to talk about unspeakable terror we see on CNN, beyond just molecules, atoms, and random chance when the event arises, we, we need to realize that evil only exists if there's something objectively good. And so the very problem is because God is who he says he is and because he actually talks to us. So when you, when you cry out to God in anguish, you do it because you assume he's listening, right? Or what in the world are you doing crying out for? makes no sense at all. So we assume God who is who he is and that he's in what we call a covenant with us, that he's actually invited us to talk to him, to, to argue with him in a sense, to debate with him, to ask him these questions. He's invited us into that. It's, you know, it's very Jewish to argue with God, right? It is. It's very Jewish. You're half Jewish, right? Yes. So um, Laura's half Jewish. Did you guys know that? Quarter. It's a quarter Jewish. So, okay, all right. So, so it's very Jewish to argue with God. You ever see um, Fiddler on the Roof? You know, Fiddler on the Roof? Yeah, you know, uh, 
Tevi is so upset about his station in life. He says to God, you made a lot of poor people, you know. And like, like, you got a whole lot of poor people in the world. And you know that line in If I Were a Rich Man? Lord of the Lion and the Lamb. How's it go? Uh, you decreed I am what I am. Would it spoil some eternal plan if I were a wealthy man? I mean, couldn't you, couldn't you have made me wealthy? And in the movie, at least, as soon as he's done with the song, he steps in manure as if to say, nah. <laughs> No, nothing's changing, Debbie, right? So, so that, that ability to argue with God is based on a relationship with him where you think he's actually listening, and he is. And he is good, and he is all-powerful. So how do we explain the kind of destitute circumstances this woman and this little girl and her parents are in? What's going on? What's God up to? And this, this Mark and Sandwich helps us so much to think about all the difficulty in this world. And the first thing I want us to realize is that God's ways are so different than ours. They are not what we would design most of the time. Even the really amazing good stuff like God becoming a man in Christ and dying for the sins of the world and bringing life through his death, you wouldn't make that up. That's not the kind of solution humans engineer. And so God does things in a way that often defies our expectations, our intuitions, the kinds of plans and strategies and the timing of things that we would have. God's ways are so radically different than the ways we have. We've got our plans. We've got our agenda. We've got our timing in things, don't we? We've got a way we would run the show if we were running the show. And when God's way of running it defies ours, it really bothers us. And so we've got to just go to God and his plans, realizing that as frail, fallen, limited human beings, he and his ways so often are radically different than the ways we would assume them to be. That's how it is. I mean, just look at this story. You've got this really important guy who asked Jesus to help him. And I could just hear the disciples, based on other conversations we know they've had, like who's going to be the greatest when Jesus comes into his powerful kingdom. They want a piece of the action and they want to be really important. No doubt they had political aspirations and maybe even military at some point. And they had all sorts of agendas for Jesus in his ministry. So when he would talk about the cross... His closest friends would say, no way, that can't be part of the plan. And he says, you're talking like Satan, Peter. And he says, you've got a plan for me that isn't my plan. I don't do things the way you do. I don't, my kingdom's not of this world. Don't, don't try to fit me in your little agenda. He won't do that for us. He loves us too much. So you've got this powerful man who, who the disciples no doubt want Jesus to help. You know, you can imagine them thinking, man, we've been helping a lot of lepers. They can't do much for us in return. But this guy, that's different. This guy, oh, he's important. He could really help us. He could get this movement going in a really good direction. Leader of the synagogue, oh, this is going to be great. Jesus is going to help this guy. He'll return the favor. We'll have more prominence. Maybe he'll even join us and give us authority in the city. This is great. And they're on their way. And Jesus slams the brakes on this journey to the house of this important man to help someone who is on the other end 
of the spectrum, socially speaking. As, I, as I've really thought about this woman, especially recently, I don't think I can think of anybody in the Bible who's worse off than she. You know, Job is the typical, but this woman, how could it be worse for her? Look, she's, she's physically bleeding every day. She's she, for a dozen years. When I have a headache for two hours, I, I'm, oh, what in the world? Why isn't the excedrin working? Twelve years this woman has had this, this ghastly condition that not only has affected her physically, it's affected her in every way imaginable. It has. Uh, she's likely lost her marriage and maybe her kids because she is not just physically destitute, she's religiously destitute. She's outside of the ability to worship God among the people of God. She is as destitute as you could, could imagine. She's, she's religiously out of bounds. She's, she's socially outcast. We're told that she spent all her money on unhelpful medical solutions. If you read some of the prescriptions that physicians at the time were prescribing, they are maddening, maddeningly futile. You know, take these herbs and stand over a hole and throw some in the hole and throw some. It just, these, these prescriptions, you want to say, no, don't, don't just pile more frustration and anguish on her. Don't give her false hope with this prescription she paid money for. There was so much quackery and hocus pocus that she had given herself to that, that this poor woman, you just say, want to say, leave her alone. But no, she just kept going to the next solution after another. And so she, she's destitute. Uh, medically, physically, she's, she's destitute religiously and socially and now financially. She's as desperate as you can get. It couldn't really get much worse, but Jesus puts the important man aside. It's another thing. He's a, he's a man in a society that didn't value women very much. And he stops to help someone on the opposite end of the spectrum as far as station in life, making no sense. And it's not just Jairus who's probably saying, what's he doing? We've got important business with a little girl who's dying here. And it's not even just the social, religious aspects of this. How about just the pure medical aspects of this? Look, if, if you brought the woman and the little girl into the ER, the woman with a chronic problem for 12 years that may go on for another 12 and a little girl on the verge of death, who are you going to treat first? If you, yeah, the little girl. If you treated the woman first, you'd lose your medical license, and you'd be sued, and you'd have no money left, right? Because that's medical. Jesus just practiced medical malpractice. <laughs> he did. He did. He, he's, he's a really bad doctor if he's only got the resources of earthly doctors. And so, so he's making major blunders here. In every way, because Jesus doesn't do things the way we would. Jesus isn't subject to the limitations that we are. And he doesn't really see these two situations as all that different. And I love that the important guy and the destitute woman actually literally assume the same posture before Jesus, don't they? On their face at his feet. 
all of her destitution wouldn't keep her from her face at the feet of Jesus. And all of the man's social status didn't prevent him from getting there either. It's a beautiful scene where they both, these two people who couldn't be more different, are in the same identical posture before Jesus. And here's what unites them. The thing that unites all of us, their brokenness, their destitution, their poverty, their humility. They're at the end of themselves. They're at the end of their resources. They're bound by their desperation. God only saves desperate people. He only saves very broken people and people who are aware of that brokenness. I just heard an interview yesterday. Al Mohler interviewed a man who did the biography of Dale Carnegie, How to Win Friends and Influence People, and he traced back this positive self-esteem and this positive thinking movement and the traces of it that you could argue have invaded American thinking more than any other way of thinking. They're, they're this Dale Carnegie and then Norman Vincent Peale and then all these right down to Joel Osteen and Oprah and Rob Bell and all these other ways of thinking now that dominate our culture way more than a biblical view of things. Way more. And so if, if we've got this view of things invaded by, by Dale Carnegie more than the Bible, we're in big trouble and we're not ready for these sorts of things. Only brokenness only recognizing as the hymn we sang says, the wretch and vile ones are the ones he saves. That's the condition we're all in in our sin. I know that's offensive to American culture. And I know it's offensive to positive self-esteem ways of thinking. But God loves us too much to leave us in self-deception. He demands we recognize our sinful condition as not just even broken, but dead in our sin, incapable of saving ourselves. We are all in the posture on our faces before the feet of Jesus. And until we get to that posture spiritually and even physically, then we will not ever understand what it means to have a Savior and to come to Him. I love Proverbs 22.2. The rich and the poor meet together. You might want to say, where's that happen? When? Sometimes not even in the church. Well, it goes on to say, the Lord's the maker of them all. You see, there's this fundamental equality in humanity and in our sinfulness and in our brokenness. And everybody's laughing at Jesus in this story. Did you catch that? Everybody just thinks Jesus is hilarious and his folly of all of this, right? So the disciples are saying, who touched you? Jesus, that's a stupid question. Who touched you? The people are laughing at him when he tells them, no, no, no. This is a temporary condition this little girl's in. I've got power over this. This isn't a lasting death here. And they say, what are you, what are you talking about? We know death. We're professional mourners. We were hired to make a big deal out of this. We know death. Jesus says, get out of here. Jesus is running the show and everybody's laughing at Jesus. Don't laugh at Jesus. You can laugh with him when he conquers sin and death, but don't laugh at him. See, his ways are so different than our ways. And Christianity is not some elitist religion. That is one of the greatest tragedies that people think Christians are the people who've got it all together. I know all of you well enough to know <laughs> the truth of, not all of you, but many of you, to know the truth of your lives. And you know me well enough 
to know that Christians are not people who got it all together. It's just the opposite. They're the ones who realized how bankrupt they were in every way. That's prerequisite number one to come to Jesus, to know how desperately you need him. If you're clinging to some sort of social status or, or religious accomplishment to get to Jesus, wave the white flag now. You're wasting your time. And his ways are so different than ours. You've got to turn it upside down. Because Jesus tells the way to get power is to give it up. He tells us that the way up is down. And to be clothed starts with admitting you're naked. The way to life is death. The way to fulfillment is actually not be obsessed with your fulfillment. But be concerned about others so much that you have a subconscious self-forgetfulness that develops in your life where you're not your priority all the time. That's when you find life, Jesus says. Lose yourself if you want to find your life, Jesus says. This is how Paul puts it. God's chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise, the weak things to shame the strong, the lowly and despised things to even the things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are, so that no one would boast in his presence. So that when you are adopted and seated with Jesus as a co-heir with Christ, you or no one else would ever assume it's because of you. But because of his grace, that's what this is about. So the first point is Jesus' ways are so different than ours. Second point is this. The cost of following Jesus is always greater than you realize. And the blessing of following Jesus is infinitely greater than you realize. I love this scene. Jesus loves this, this man, Jairus, and this this woman too much to let them settle for what they came for. He demands more from them than they were looking for. The woman comes to Jesus. What does she want? A miracle. What does Jesus want? A meeting with her. Think about how mean it is for Jesus to do this the way he does. Look, you think, all right, if Jesus is really nice, and slick. He would have gone and let her slink off with her healing, right? But instead, he makes her go public. He calls her out. It's, it's really, it seems so mean for him to do that. Just let her slink away quietly. Who knows? Maybe the crowd will stone her for making all of them unclean. She probably thinks Jesus is about to rebuke her in front of everybody and say, what are you doing? You know you're not supposed to be here. What are you doing? But Jesus got a, has a much higher agenda for her than she has for herself. She wants healing. He wants a relationship. He wants to point out the source of her healing is himself, and her faith in him is the bridge to that healing. And that even that healing isn't an end in itself. He says, daughter, don't leave thinking the robe is the key, that it's magic, that it's some superstitious healing. No, you need to know that your faith in me is the key. That's what you really need more than anything else. And I think he's not just ministering to that woman, but to the crowd, to Jairus, who's about to have his faith majorly tested. Isn't it great that Jesus calls Jairus to faith right after watching a woman healed right in his sight? And he does this. See, God's got a bigger agenda for this woman than even just the woman. And he does this for us too. So we can sit here in 2015 in La Mirada in, uh, in Fullerton 
pardon me, and, and be encouraged by this. Be blessed by this. Have our faith deepen and hear Jesus say to us, don't be afraid, just believe. Only believe. That's what I'm calling you to. Does that sound simplistic to you? It's not. When Jesus is the object of that faith, of that belief. She wanted a miracle. Jesus wanted a meeting. This is how Tim Keller puts it. Jesus demands far more than you expect, and he gives infinitely more than you expect. That's what's happening here is, is they got way more what they, than what they ever bargained for. And he required of them more than. So Jairus thought he was going to go right to the house and get, get the healing. But no, Jesus says, no, I'm, there, I'm going to create a delay for you that demands even more faith from you than it took for you to come to me in the first place. I'm going to create an obstacle to delay this and require even more faith from you. See, for Jesus, healing the little girl of a fever or raising her from the dead, no biggie. Not a big difference, right? He's not subject to the time requirements that uh, uh, even a good physician would be subject to. He's above all that. He's powerful above all that. And so Jesus isn't subject to these things. He, he loved, and I, can, I too can put myself, I have a 12-year-old daughter. I think of, I put Paige in this and I almost start to weep when I imagine Paige lying in a bed dying. And I have, I have longed for the ability to literally suck pain out of my kids and into myself. I have. I would love that ability. You want to talk about superhero abilities? I'd love to take pain away from my kids. I'd love that. God knows better than to give me that ability. And imagine his father saying, oh. he didn't lack compassion for the woman, but his little girl's dying. And Jesus says, no, Jairus, I've got something more important for you than your little girl staying alive or even being raised from the dead. And that's faith in me. Again, Jesus is pointing to himself in all these miracles. Never stop with the miracles. It's way bigger than that. And God loves you too much to limit what he does in your life to your goals for your life. He loves you way too much to just submit to what your plans are, what your goals are, what your timing and things are. He can be trusted, and he says, don't fear, only believe. But we're taught the opposite all the time. We're taught you can do whatever you set your mind to. That's blasphemy. We're taught that everything is for you to manipulate. I, I, I left my laptop on an airplane in Beijing. Lots of luck finding that thing, right? And I was running around the airport. But I found out after, and my biggest concern is everybody, I, I have this document on my computer that says important numbers. It's on the desktop. I'm sorry, I'm an idiot, I know, I know. It's got, and I, but I use code language like SS before a number, things like that. And um, so I'm okay. Well, I'm saying, oh no, by the time we land in LA, they'll clean me out. Do you know, I was able to go on my phone and erase my laptop. <laughs> Travis, that doesn't surprise you, but you can imagine what the, I felt so powerful. And I'll lock it too. And I did. As soon as somebody went online with that thing, gone and locked, I felt really powerful. Felt stupid for losing my laptop, but we can get the impression that we are far more in control than we really are. 
We're not at all. Listen to Elizabeth Lash. She says, we are taught that everything that is not us is there for us to be manipulated by us for our own ends. <laughs> if that's your view of the world, wow, this is a totally different way of thinking that we find here. Don't fear, only believe. You're not in charge. God is. He can be trusted. Point three. We desperately need a tender father and savior to rescue us from this cold world, this harsh world filled with sin and sickness and death. I don't know what your worldview is. I haven't met you. I, I don't know. But if it doesn't have a solution to death, if it doesn't have a solution to sin, it is a terribly faulty worldview. And the Christian worldview provides the solution to these things. And it does it not just from objective principles or morality. It does it through a God who comes to us and loves us with the love of a father through his son. Listen to Psalm 103. Just as a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. And do you know all the other religions of the world greatly lack a tender, loving father who comes to us as children? The Christian faith is the only one who has these images of God himself in his witness coming to us and literally touching us, literally getting his hands dirty and bloody in that touching of our desperate need. That's what he does. That's the God we serve in the Christian faith. God is the father we desperately need, that intimate love, that provision, that care, that goodness, that protection. There's nothing in your life God doesn't know about. There's nothing in your life God doesn't care about. The stunning thing about these stories, one of you pointed this out, is how detailed. There are seven participial phrases to describe the condition of this woman before we, we, we meet her. We find out seven horrible, important things about her. There's intimate detail here. Jesus knows her personally, and he meets her right where her need is and takes her well beyond what she came for. He cares for you like a good father cares for his children. But the great news is that Jesus isn't a frail father, even like the best father on the planet. Because even the best father, even Michael Landon died. <laughs> even, even the little hug pod died, right? The best father in the world. I, I always get father insecurity when I watch Little House on the Prairie, right? <laughs> He's always better than I am makes chairs, right? It's just, it's just crazy. So, yeah, even the best fathers in the world die. We need a God who doesn't die. We need a father who doesn't die. And listen to what Jesus says. He says, do not be afraid. This is in Revelation, at the end of it all. Do not be afraid. I'm the living one who died. Look, I'm alive forever, and I hold the keys of death and the grave. Jesus conquered death, and Jesus says, oh, don't be afraid. In this world, you will have many troubles, but take heart. I've overcome the world. Jesus gets the last word. So when you put your faith in him, there's nothing to fear. Jesus always gets the last word. He wins, and he wins with the power of um, Almighty God and with the tender love of a father. The Lord of the universe, someone said who put the stars into place, takes you by the hand and says, honey, it's time to get up. 
You know, this, this Aramaic phrase that Jesus uses for this little girl, Talitha Kumi, it's, it's this beautiful, tender expression. It was so common. That's how you wake up your little daughter when you love her. It couldn't be more of a tender way of raising this girl from the dead. It's, it's emphasizing the simplicity of it for Jesus, the, the ease of it for Jesus. It's not, and now I will, no, no, it's just, little girl, it's time to get up. You know, magicians, they'll have the, the trick done 15 minutes ago, and then they'll do all this other stuff. And, and Jesus just says, honey, it's time to get up. She must be hungry. It couldn't be more tender. You know, when we adopted Caroline, she was seven. Three weeks, she'll be 15. Uh. And the day I met her, I just, I think the first nickname I gave, I'm a nicknamer. The first nickname I gave her was Little One. My little one. And I still call her little one. And on her wedding day, I will call her little one. I will. I will. Uh, she's, she's little one, right? And, and I'll wake her up in the morning, and I'll stroke her hair or kiss her on the cheek, and I'll say, time to get up, little one. Time to get up. And that's, that's what Jesus is saying to this little girl. He's saying, it's time to get up. The one who holds the keys to life and death in his hands is here. So let's get up. Let's get you something to eat. It's as beautiful and tender and fatherly as anything you could ever say. No more orphan uh, status for you. No more loneliness for you. No more anxiety and fear for you. I'm here. It's time to get up. If you're here this morning and, and you've never trusted Jesus as you've come to understand him this morning, oh, please realize he's worthy of all your trust. And he's saying to you, little one, get up. It's, it's time to trust me, not all of your own plans and agendas. I love you way too much to, let, to settle for your plans for your life. I love you so much I'm demanding that your plan for my, your life be about me centrally about Jesus, and he's calling you to faith, and he's saying, saying, little one, get up. It's time to put your faith in me and find new life in me. And this baptism tonight, that's what that's all about. The Lord's Supper that you'll take tonight, that we'll take in Lamarat, it's about that very thing, not fearing, but putting our faith in Jesus, depending on him. And when they come out of the water, think, little one, get up. It's time to get up and walk in newness of life. That's what will be said. That's what he calls you to. Oh, that's life. That's life abundant and that's life eternal. And if you are someone who's trusted Jesus, maybe you've been walking with him a really long time. And, and it's the same message for you. Because even when we do have newness of life, it can be hard to keep walking. It can be hard on days when there's so much uncertainty about tomorrow or next month, when, when there are bad diagnoses, when, when there's wayward children, when there's anxiety and sin you thought you had conquered, that, well, here you have it now. When there's all sorts of trials in life that knocks you down, and Jesus is saying, little one, it's time to get up. I've got all the resources you could ever need to care for you with power and with the tender love of a father. Little one, it's time to get up. Let me pray. Father, help us. We are all in the same condition of frailty and sinfulness and brokenness and weakness before you.
And thank you, Lord, that we can hear the same words that Jesus said to Jairus and know they're directed to each of us as well. Help us, Lord, to have teachable hearts and tender hearts and confident hearts so that we don't fear, just believe. We thank you that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. Thank you that he has provided the solution we desperately need, the answer we desperately need. And that he does hold the keys of life and death in his hands, and he gets the last word. And help us, Lord, to be a people who fear you so much we fear nothing else and believe. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.